You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is Episode 79, covering the week of July 3rd through July 7, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, let's talk about a few things that we always get to talk about. Number one, if you like this podcast, please share it around with your friends on social media. And you can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, at Abbeville I-N-S-T. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Abbeville Institute. And you can find us on YouTube. Again, Abbeville I-N-S-T. So go on out there and like our, all our social media page. Follow us. Do all those wonderful things. Also, if you like the Abbeville Institute and you like our mission, you can help us by giving a tax-deductible contribution. You can find all that information on our website. Just go to our website, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. You can click on that, and then it gives you all of our different membership options. For as little as $3 a month if you're a student or $25 a year if you're a student, you can help support Uh, the Institute, and help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. If you're not a student, it's as little as 5 bucks a month or $50 a year. So all those things are available for you. Go out there and check them out. Uh, Also, just want to remind you, if you do go to our webpage, you can uh, give us an email address. You get a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell, and therefore you get on our emailing list. And we send you our daily dose of Dixie. Monday through Friday, and then on Sunday, you get our weekly email that wraps up everything we did in that week, including a link to this podcast. So uh, going out there and give us an email, join the thousands of people that have done so, and help us continue to, to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Now, of course, next week, if you're listening to this uh, on time, the week of the 3rd through the 7th, we will be at our summer school starting July 9th. The summer school, of course, by this point uh, is full. We have, uh, from what I understand, the largest group of people we've ever had at our summer school, so thank you for that. Uh, But the summer school will last from July 9th through July 14th uh, next week. And uh, if you're going to it, we'll be excited to see you there. I'll be doing two talks on the 13th. So, um, again, if you're going to the summer school, I hope you're going to have a good time, and I can't wait to to meet everybody and uh, talk about uh, the New South, which is what my presentations will be on. So... That said, let's get into the material for the week. We had a lot of good stuff, and generally under uh, a very uh, similar theme, everything seems a little discordant, but uh, it all works together, and that theme, as usual, is the Southern tradition, which is what we talk about, but uh, in many different ways. So the first piece of the week was entitled, It is History That Teaches Us to Hope. Now, notice in this week, as I talk about the material, we didn't have anything about the 4th of July. We have run material about secession before, Independence Day. We've run it about Vicksburg on the 4th and how uh, that particular area of the South, Mississippi, did not celebrate the 4th of July for, for a generation or more. Uh, but we didn't do that this week. We had some other things to talk about. And of course, with all the things that are going on in uh, mainstream political culture today and mainstream society, it seems that uh, we are constantly being bombarded with attacks on the Southern tradition, whether it's the antebellum Southern tradition or the postbellum Southern tradition. But what, what people don't realize is that so much of America, and we could, we could have done something about this on the 4th, is Jeffersonian. And of course, that is the basis for the Institute, this Jeffersonian ideal of American decentralization, small, uh, small political units, uh, family, uh, land. Uh, and so these things are important to the Institute. And of course, all those uh, particular ideas were really f- uh, 
fleshed out this week. Uh, so that first piece, it is history that teaches us to hope. One of the things I like about this particular piece, and it's actually the third part of a three-part series, is that it gets into this idea of secession. So I said we didn't really talk about Independence Day, but in this particular way, we did. Um, and one of the things this piece gets into, um, it's this idea of secession, not necessarily political secession, though uh, that is discussed, but individual secession. In fact, the last part of the of the piece is a wonderful uh, summary of what the author calls personal secession. And so she says, just like the Orthodox grandmothers who kept traditions and symbols of Orthodox Christianity alive during Bolshevism and throughout the Soviet's long and grueling persecution of the Eastern Church, the home is the most effective place to subvert the insidious power of cultural genocide. And this is true. Uh, one thing that I think has become very clear is that Confederate monuments, Confederate symbols, all these things are going to be under attack, and it's going to extend beyond that. Uh, the attack on Andrew Jackson, for example, in New Orleans. New Orleans, of all places, uh, the place that Andrew Jackson became a hero and, of course, led a militia of people from New Orleans against the British. Uh, if Andrew Jackson is going to be attacked there, then it's only a matter of time before other members of uh, antebellum American society are attacked as well, including the founding generation. Uh, I've seen reports that you know James Madison is under attack in Wisconsin because he was a slaveholder. James Madison, right? So uh, it's only a matter of time before all these things are attacked. However, so in the public sphere, we could see the lessening of uh, the influence of the South. And of course, that's unfortunate because the South, as I've said on this podcast many times, is America. And as uh, Donald Livingston has said, uh, the South was America. Um, for the first 80 years of American history, you couldn't get around the South. And of course, in the 20th century, and this is one of the things I'll be talking about uh, in my talks on the 13th, in the 20th century, the South still had a major role in American society. It's really only in the last 30 years that you've seen a lessening of that. And so what's happening in so many ways is we're, we're getting to a point like we had before in the late 19th century when everything Southern was under attack at that point. And this is why Southerners were consciously putting up monuments, memorials, these type of things to uh, the men who had sacrificed all in the war for Southern independence. Now, we don't have anyone doing that today. Uh, because that's out of fashion. But there are still people out there, even though they're maligned and made fun of. And we have a piece this week that makes that takes it back to a month, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But uh, there are still a lot of people out there that are trying to keep this alive in their homes. And that's exactly what that personal secession mes mes message is. Uh, and so the author continues, This revisionist history peddled in government schools and reinforced in the popular culture is one of the main reasons we homeschool, what I, which I call personal secession. It's through home education that we can learn and preserve our customs and heritage as well as raise up ambassadors and Southern apologetics. And I think that term apologetics um, is important. You know, we have Christian apologetics and we learn how to best articulate the Christian uh, worldview, but we need to have Southern apologetics too and how to best articulate a Southern worldview. And the piece on Wednesday gets into that very well. So, uh, the idea that um, you can have some type of personal secession, you can withdraw personally from the mainstream culture, is important. Now, it, 
there are two different types of secession, and uh, actually Richard Weaver did a very good job of this in explaining two types of individuals. You can have those that do like uh, Thoreau and withdraw and live on a little Walden Pond and completely withdraw from society. And then you can have those like Randolph of Roanoke who acted and acted very engaged in society. He was a negative, but a negative in a positive way. He was out there saying, we don't need to do this. So you can actually, in, in some ways, do both. You can, you can reinforce the Southern tradition at home, and you can take care of your backdoor, think locally, act locally, is a phrase I always use. But then you can also be engaged in trying to ensure in a positive way, in a positive way, that the Southern tradition is well-articulated. What's valuable in the Southern tradition is well-articulated, and that's what we're trying to do at the Institute. We're try, we, we try to have a very positive message, we're not always uh, you know, cranky and upset about things that are going on. Of course, everyone gets that way. But the other thing we try to do is speak in a positive way about what we should still be adhering to in the Southern tradition. What is still valuable about it? And so that's where all, this, all the effort that we have uh, comes into play here. And of course, with that said, this is the first week that we have our new Abbeville Review up and running for new books. Now, we've, we've done some other books before at other times, but uh, Tuesday of this week, we published a review of John Crow Ransom's Land. Now, uh, this was just published this year, 2017, and uh, this was the manuscript that John Crow Ransom had written and never published. And in fact, it sat unpublished for decades. Uh, now, John Kerr Ransom, if you don't know, is one of the 12 authors of I'll Take My Stand. And in fact, Ransom himself was one of the most important of those 12 men. And uh, he, taught at, uh, he taught in the South. Um, he was part of those fugitives, Donald Davidson, Alan Tate, Robert Penn Warren. Uh, and um, Ransom was instrumental in getting that particular I'll Take My Stand the book published. And so one of the main critiques of this particular book, and I remember going through this in graduate school when I was assigned this in a New South uh, seminar, uh, the professor there uh, was very critical of the book uh, because he said, well, this, these guys had no idea about farming and what it was. I mean, they, they just don't understand how hard it was and how poor people were, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the major critiques is that these guys knew nothing about economics. And so Ransom set out to correct that. In fact, this particular book is, at heart, an economics book. Uh, and so that was the point. And it's a critique of industrialization. Now, when they published... Who Owns America, uh, just a few years later, uh, six years later, in the heart of the Great Depression, that particular book was also a critique of industrial capitalism. But land was targeted. It's not a very, it's not a very long book. It's a couple hundred pages. But it was targeted at what, and a solution at what could be done in this growing industrial society. And so, um, as uh, Alan Cornett says, as the Great Depression began, Ransom saw that capitalism couldn't deliver on the economic promises it had made. He begins the book with homeless people in vacant land, a paradox created by industrialism. 
Good times, he writes, consist in occupation for all, an economic function for everybody. It is the first of is the first point of a sound political economy. And so you look at industrial society and, and uh, you look at what's going on. Now, I think that in some ways the South, as you move forward in the 20th century, and again, this is as you're looking at factory work in the South and what they tried to do and how they tried to manage factory work in a Southern way, with a Southern economic model, uh, in Southern methods of labor, things began to change a little bit. But it's clear that an industrial society, when you don't own your land, you cannot take care of yourself, you're not self-sufficient, you're in tremendous amounts of debt, these type of things. Uh, if something goes wrong, if the economy has a hiccup, you're really in trouble. And so these industrial workers are facing unemployment, and because they're unemployed, because they have no land, they have no livelihood. So Ransom says the, the solution is, quote, right under our noses. And so he asks the question, why is not the land perfectly available today for its ancient use as a refuge individually for those who have failed in the business economy when that refuge is needed as never before? Now, this gets into the idea of distributism. People like uh, G.K. Chesterton and uh, Hallier Belloc and some of the things they began to advocate, which uh, to some smack of socialism, communism, to take land and give it to people, to have the government seize land and then give it to people beyond that. And I think that's one of the greatest critiques of, of this particular model and what a lot of people cannot seem to get. Uh, and they don't, they don't like that. They don't want a central authority doing these things. And I think there's something very interesting because, you know, even the agrarians were interested in decentralization, regionalism, to a point. I think there's something interesting about Southerners as we move into the 20th century. The Jeffersonian tradition had long been opposed to a strong central authority, big government, and big banks and big finance capital. And what they really feared was the fusion of those two things together. So as we move into the 20th century, I think Southerners were looking around at the world and saying, you know, we've already got this fusion here. It's already there. So we need to break that, and we're going to use the big government that the North created to go and take care of the people of the South. We're going to use it against them. And I think you find that in Southerners as we move into the 20th century. You find that Southerners start accepting more government activity, particularly in social welfare legislation and things of that nature. Also, of course, in defense. I mean, they had always, Southerners have always been interested in, uh, or much more militaristic than the rest of the Union. But they were more acceptable, more agreeable to a type of social welfare legislation because they believed in so many ways that the North had robbed them during the war. This was payback. And uh, I think when you look at you know government activity and you look at how many Southerners supported things like the New Deal and uh, these type of things, um, you find that uh, a lot of this, a lot of this uh, interest in these programs, you know, you would say, well, that's very inconsistent with uh, Jeffersonianism. But to them, it was using the apparatus that had been uh, that had been given to them that they had tried to fight against. It's almost like Patrick Henry, who had warned against the Constitution becoming a Federalist. Because he had said, well, look, I told you don't do it, but now that we got it, uh, I'm going to go in whole hog here and I'm going to support this thing. 
Uh, and so I think you have some of that. Um, and of course, the important part of this is independence. You know, land does provide independence. And that's what the agrarians, the fugitives, were all interested in, independence. And so as you move into the piece on Wednesday by John Devaney, uh, this is a wonderful little piece. It's actually a longer piece, but um, it's about the Southern tradition. And it's about what happened to the Southern tradition, how the Puritan Yankee had been responsible for their treasury of counterfeit virtue and how they had gone out and destroyed the South in so many different ways, economically, politically, uh, you know, socially. This was an ongoing war, one that had the one that had started long before the actual war in 1861. There had been an ongoing war for years. And it just so happens the North won that war. And so because the North won that war, they won so many other wars too. The war of literature, the war of culture, the war of economics. All of those things the North won because the South was so thoroughly defeated in 1861. And so all that the South had left was their memory and the idea they could retrench and hang on to the last vestiges of their culture in any way they could do it. That was why they had monuments and why they had massive remembrances, because they were trying to hang on, not to, uh, uh, as, as the critics would say, well, of course, they're trying to hang on to their social status within a society that's rapidly changing. And of course, uh, when you're looking at the South in the late 19th and early 20th century, those type of things were important. But in so many other ways, it was uh, their identity as Southerners that was at stake here. And so as we look at America, and this piece was actually written in 2016, we just published it, but as you look at America today, what, can, what in the Southern tradition can we hang on to that will provide guidance in modern American political culture? And so Dr. Devaney says this, the above onlooked for trends do provide room for a revival of the best in the Southern tradition. The best, not the worst, but the best. What is that? What is it that would be the best in Southern tradition? So he continues, our support must go out in any and all to any and all who advocate for a return to states' rights, local governance, and political restraint. He says, I wish California well in the efforts of her citizens who hope to secede. I may not agree with all their reasons for doing so, but I wish them well and urge them to pursue the matter with prudence, restraint, and justice. The emergence of little platoons of society homeschooling, microfarms, local businesses for local communities are as welcome as a cool rain in July. May all such thrive and do good in their communities. And we pray, of course, for a return to the older religiousness of the South, the bedrock of any lasting revival of the Southern tradition. So these are the little things, as the first piece talked about, that you can hang on to in the Southern tradition. How you can help the Southern tradition continue to grow. You listen to this podcast, you read our material, but you do so in your home as well. And that's where it starts. And, of course, this should be common sense. But you have to invest there. And then he continues, The South will survive because in many ways it has embodied so much that is good in the Western and Christian traditions. Contra our misguided foes, no one is foolish enough to wish for the return of slavery, Jim Crow, or the endemic violence that plagued the frontier regions of the South. Which is true. What does need to be revived is the traditional Southern respect for nature, the acknowledgement of the inscrutable will of God, the right of local communities and states to govern themselves, and tolerance for those who may think differently for our, from ourselves. 
That, of course, in so many ways. If you look at, for example, go back to Jefferson. One of the, proud, one of the things he was most proud of in his life was his bill for religious freedom in Virginia. Toleration. A putting away of duplicity, always a mark of the conquered, and an embrace of forthrightness, hospitality, and good manners would go very far in healing the region of its real wounds. Let us have no New South imitations of modern Yankee businesses, Yankee universities, Yankee education system, Yankee politics, and Yankee manners. These may have their place, but that place is not here. Let us instead advocate for the best in the Southern tradition, rebuild it each day and in every moment of our lives. By all means, let us avoid and forgive the sins of our fathers, but more so let us imitate their virtues and always defend their honor. And I think that last paragraph embodies what the Abbeville Institute is about. Of course, Dr. Devaney was also one of Clyde Wilson's students, uh, one of the best students he had, and uh, a very bright uh, individual and one who really gets what the Southern tradition is all about. And so on Thursday, we ran a piece entitled The Absurdity of Racial Correctness Exposed. And this is important, too, because uh, it's written by Jack Kerwick, and it was originally published at townhall.com. But Jack Kerwick is a philosophy professor. Uh, he actually lives in, uh, in Chicago, I believe. So, um, he's, but he's very interested in the Southern tradition, Western civilization, these type of things. And uh, this is a tongue-in-cheek blast at what he calls racial correctness. And it's, it's more than that. It's mocking the people on the left. And I think something that's very important needs to be done is humor. Making fun of the idiots goes a long way to showing the absurdity of everything that happens in society. And so, and so Dr. Kerwick gets into all kinds of funny things. He says, quote, if we're going to eradicate from the public Confederate monuments because they commemorate traitorous white supremacists, then we must eradicate monuments to America's founders, traitors, white supremacists, all of them. Well, that would be true. And he says, if Moon thinks only the brainwashed, the stupid, and the racist could fail to see how monuments to Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis calls hurt to contemporary blacks, then it follows that only the brainwashed, the stupid, and the racist can fail to see that monuments to our founders do the same. Well, for that matter, he says, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution should be scrapped. Well, I mean, it, it goes from there. Of course, uh, this, is, it, you know, this is all tongue-in-cheek, but this stuff is actually going to happen, and that's, that's the sad thing. Number two, America itself, by Moon's reckoning, needs to be renamed, for it was America that kidnapped Africans, enslaved them, and so forth. Besides that, America was named after a European explorer, Amerigo Vespucci. Every moment in the daily lives of blacks and Native Americans can only be spent in, a, in excruciating pain, for they are constantly reminded, as long as they reside in America, of the cruel treatment to which Europeans subjected them. The English language must be abolished, he says. American civilization, its science, technology, commerce, entertainment, in short, all of, these, all of its achievements created by the European settlers and their descendants should be reduced to dust and ashes. The term African and African-American are standing monuments to white supremacy. Uh, uh, as the sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark has shown, the very notion of the individual is ultimately a discovery for which the Christian West, i.e. Europe, deserves the credit. So that has to be gotten rid of. In short, what... Dr. Kerwick is showing here, is so if we're going to do this, you have to get rid of in, the entire fabric of Western civilization. And then the question always is, well, what do you replace it with? What do you do? Uh, 
And so if we're going to tear all this stuff down, if we're going to take it away, if you're going to follow the... People would say, this is just a slippery slope. No, it's not. It's not a slippery slope. There are people actually out there advocating these things now. Take them down. Not just the Confederate monuments, but get rid of George Washington. Get rid of Thomas Jefferson. Rename things. Contextualize things to make it seem like they're evil people. If you do all of that, what do you have left? Where are people recognizing the blessings of Western civilization for humanity and all the things Western civilization has done for humanity? And so we stand in so many ways at a, at a precipice. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this moving forward? The low-hanging fruit is being picked. And it's going to be all picked out. You go out to the apple tree, or in the south here, the peach tree. You go out to the peach tree, and you get the good juicy peaches on the bottom. Well, the top is going to get picked out too. But uh, it's harder to get those, but everyone wants the peaches that wants to pick them. So are you going to be the sentinel trying to keep the birds out of the top of the tree, trying to pick them off? Well, you should be guarding the bottom fruit too. But that's not happening. So what happens when the low-hanging fruit is gone? The top of the tree is going to be attacked. They're going to want those top peaches. And so where do I'm, and I, I did an interview with the Christian Science Monitor a couple of years ago, 2015, after all of this started. And I made the point, where are we going to stop? Where does it end? That was two years ago. And here we are. We're still facing the same thing. We're still having daily reminders of a monument coming down, a street being renamed, uh, a, a monument being contextualized, a, a school name under attack. This is never going to end. It's a, it's a long war. And so what we have to do is continue to educate people. That is important. But again, make sure in your own families, in your own daily lives, you ensure that these things are these people are remembered for how important they were in society. And not only that, make fun of the idiots who are advocating these things. Make fun of them. Point out their absurdity. Point out their stupidity. Because that's what it is. Make people aware of the problems of this particular mindset and how this is ultimately going to work. How it's ultimately going to create a climate of intolerance. I mean, we already have that. Intolerance. And so when Dr. Devaney talked about tolerance for diverse opinion, it's going to create a climate of intolerance. It already has. College campuses, it's there. The left is the most intolerant bunch on the face of the planet. They always have been. The left has always been the more violent group than the right. It's always been that way. You go back through history and you find that. And then, of course, we have the concluding piece for the week, by Fred Reed, great Fred on everything, generally figured it out. Of course, this was originally published at his website, but he starts with a quote by Robert E. Lee. Quote, The consolidation of the states into one vast empire, sure to be aggressive abroad and despotic at home, with a certain precursor of ruin which has overwhelmed all that preceded it. And so Fred says, The man was perceptive. And he was. And so... As you look at what's happened since 18, <laughs> since Lee said this, uh, following the war, 
what's happened in the last 150 years. I mean, if any of these men could see it, they would all say, well, we told you so. As Fred says, tyranny at home, said, said General Lee. Just so, this could happen only with the consolidation of the states into one vast empire. And that's what's happened. And then you get to the point, tyranny abroad. As, as Fred points out, tyranny comes easily when those seeking it need only a corrupt, only corrupt a single Congress, appoint a single Supreme Court, or control the departments of one executive branch. In a confederation of largely self-governing states, those hungry to domineer would have to suborn 50 Congresses. It could not be done. State governments are accessible to the governed. They can be ejected. They are much more likely to be sympathetic to the desires of the constituents since they are of the same culture. Aggressive abroad, said General Lee. It's not exactly what we see, Fred asks. In a confederacy, Fred goes on, states would have to approve war. Few would, unless the United States itself were threatened. They might well refuse to pay for wars not in their benefit or to allow their sons, daughters uh, to be conscripted. But with a central government, those benefiting from war can concentrate money and influence only on, the, on that government. For example, military industry, Israel, big oil, Wall Street. Wars might carry the votes of states with, army, with arms factories. Other states would decline. In principle, Fred goes on, the Constitution should have prevented the hijacking of the military that we now suffer. As we all should know, and some do, America cannot under the Constitution go to war without a declaration by Congress, the last of which, one of which occurred in 1941. But a single central government can be corrupted more easily than 50 state governments. A few billionaires, well-funded lobbies, and the remoteness of Washington from the common consciousness make controlling the legislature as easy as buying a pair of shoes. And so he concludes, if America attacks North Korea or Russia or China, we'll read of it the day after. The central government, and only the central government, decides. A few days ago I read that the Pentagon contemplates sending thousands of additional troops to Afghanistan. This combines tyranny at home and aggression abroad. Who wants to send them? A few neocons in New York, the arms industry, a few generals, and several senators. It could not happen in a confederacy. Will this, as generally predicted, prove the certain precursor of ruin which has overwhelmed all that preceded it? Wait, he says. So this is important. Lee was pointing out the southern tradition of decentralization. He was concerned about the effect that centralization would have on future Americans. And of course, his prediction of ruin has come true. And so as you look back at the material for this week and we think about the Southern tradition, those are the things we should focus on. Family, Christianity, land, individual, uh, individualism in many different ways, thinking locally, acting locally. Those are the things that preserve the Southern tradition. And it's why we do things like the Abbeville Institute, because education becomes paramount. Until next time, good day.